Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Cove Church, welcome. So glad that you are with us today, wherever you're at. Uh, welcome. If it's your first time with us, we're glad to have you. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, welcome back. My name's Ethan. I get to be our youth pastor here, and I'm excited today because I get to uh, hang out in Galatians chapter 4 with you. Uh, if you didn't know, we're in week uh, 4 of our series, uh, The Gospel of Done. And so that puts us right into chapter 4 of the book of Galatians. Uh, and I'm excited to hang out in this chapter because Paul, the author uh, of Galatians, he begins with the theological. And then in the middle part of, Gala- of Galatians chapter 4, he goes super personal, deeply personal. And then at the end, he wraps up back with theological again. It's almost like he's creating a wisdom Oreo for us. So I hope that you receive that from online, that wisdom Oreo. It's going to be really awesome. So this morning, I want to spend some time in each part of this chapter, starting with the beginning of chapter 4. And uh, as we do that, I wanted to start this morning with a story that I feel like will set up the rest of what we talk about this morning well. And it's actually, it's a story that you may have heard from this stage before, this, the, the platform here before by somebody else. But uh, I wanted to share kind of my perspective on the story because I think it, it lands really well with what we're talking about today. So around four, maybe five years ago, um, I got invited along with a group of some other pastors to be a part of some meetings that were happening down in California. Um, I, I was there, my, my dad was there, and a handful of some other pastors. And uh, it was a meeting that, uh, for what ended up becoming Discover Ministry School. Um, but uh, it was a, around three days of, of talking and meetings. And, and, and honestly, every single day, was, it, was a, it was one of those weeks where it was like morning meeting to dinner time. You're just in meetings all day long. Except for... There was one day, um, I think it was like day two or day three, that we had a span of probably about four or five hours free that we were able to just go take some time, do what we wanted to do. And so there was a group, there was a group of us that decided, hey, we're in Southern California. We're here. We should at least go check out Disneyland. We're, we're close by it. We, we're not going to go buy tickets for Disneyland because we're not going to be able to spend enough time in Disneyland. But we, we will go to downtown Disney. We'll just check out what's going on. Um, so we decided to uh, go check out downtown Disney. We're walking around. We're hanging out. And as, as we're walking around, somebody has the idea, what if we were to just go see what Disneyland looks like? What if we were to just go walk and, and just at least admire it from afar? So we decided to do it. We walk over to Disneyland, and we're just kind of standing outside the gates about as creepily as, as you could imagine, right? Just this group of uh, people just looking in longingly at Disneyland. And so as we're creepily standing outside Disneyland, one of the employees, who's one of the ticket checkers or whatever, um, she motions over to us to, to, to come to her. And, uh, and, and we all, we look at each other for a second. And we deeply, like truly thought we were in trouble. We thought we were going to get kicked out. Hey, you guys are being too creepy. You've got to move your creepiness somewhere else. Um, we, we, we thought we were going to get kicked out. But we, she motions over to us. We go up to her. And she says, 
what are you guys doing here? And we say, oh, you know, we're, we just have a few hours to kill and we wanted to come check out Disneyland. So we're just kind of looking, seeing what it, you know, could be, thinking about it. And you know, so she talks to us for a little bit and she ends up asking one of the people in our group, who's your favorite Disney character? And uh, somebody responded, I think they said Goofy was their favorite character. And, and she says to them, what if you went inside and met Goofy? And all of us were totally taken back. We had no idea how to even respond. We were like, what do you, what do you mean if we go inside and meet Goofy? She was like, I, I can't help you if you leave, if you leave Disneyland, but I can let you in and you can go inside and hang out in Disneyland for a little bit. And we were just totally astonished that we got to go and we went in and we went inside and we, we rode Space Mountain and we, we uh, uh, I think we ended up riding it twice and it was awesome. And then we had to leave. So it was kind of a total waste of this trip, but it was just this amazing opportunity that we got to experience by doing nothing. All we had to do was stand outside Disneyland, just looking, and we received this crazy reward on the other side. I bring up this story because Paul starts this chapter by using an illustration of a slave and a son living in the same household to describe the purpose of the law, how important grace is, and the reality of being sons and daughters. So I want to pick this up just at the beginning of Galatians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. Um, This is going to be verses 1 through 3. I'll read this for us. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul uses this language of sons and daughters and slaves. Remember, this is ancient uh, Roman culture. It was a common, uh, common language. And he's saying that an heir, a son or a daughter, is no different from a slave in this regard. Essentially saying that they both have people telling them what to do. They're both under bondage of some sort. Even though the son is a rightful heir, he or she is not inherited anything yet, right? We can understand pieces of how this works with inheritance today. Uh, Many times if a son or a daughter or maybe a niece or nephew is written into somebody's will, they'll attach an age to that person. When so-and-so turns 18, they can uh, receive their inheritance. Or when when so-and-so turns 21, then they can receive their inheritance. So this verse goes on to say, this is verses uh, 4 through 8. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's something crucial that happens here that I don't want us to miss. 
Paul starts by saying, you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. You are, a, you are mine. I've chosen you. He did all of what he did, not just to save us, not just to remove guilt, not just so we can experience forgiveness, but so we could have genuine and intimate relationship with him. And not just as this God that's so far removed, that doesn't care about us, a God that doesn't see us, but a God that chooses us, that adopts us, cares for us as a father. Paul says he doesn't just free us, he adopts us. And I think for me, what I often get caught up in is I let my brokenness determine my closeness to God. I let my own brokenness determine my closeness to God. I will think once I can clean up this part of my life that is messy, then I can seek after God with my whole heart. Once I deal with my stuff, then I can pursue him. Because if I pursue relationship now, he's going to see the stuff that I haven't had time to fix yet. The stuff that I haven't dealt with yet. I'm not enough yet. He's going to see the ugly parts of my soul. But the reality that we can live in is relationship with God isn't dependent on my ability to become better. My closeness with him relies on what he has already done. What he's already done. It doesn't matter what the world has tried to attach to you or to me what things have tried to weigh us down, the reality is you are no longer a slave, but a son, but a daughter, an heir. Verse four says, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent his son so that, dot, 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 we can have genuine relationship with him. It's not about what we can or can't do. It's about who he is. He loves us as he finds us. So for me, the change that I have to make daily is to fight that feeling that I have to somehow measure up then in order to attempt relationship with God. He came not just to fix a sin problem, but to reconcile relationship. There's another way of thinking that Paul points out that we can fall into and make us, it makes us yield when pursuing relationship with God that I want to draw attention to. This is verses 8 through 10 of Galatians chapter 4. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. And now that you have found God, or should I say now that God has found you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual powers of this world? One phrase of this passage that is, I don't want us to miss. Paul corrects himself. He says, and now that you have found God, or should I say now that God has found you? Uh, maybe for you, this, this verse makes you do a double take, makes you look twice. 
And you say to yourself, can God really lose someone, right? If God has to find me, does that mean he lost me, right? Paul's point, what he's pointing out here, what matters isn't necessarily my knowledge of God, but God's knowledge of me. God's knowledge of me, which is complete knowledge, detailed knowledge. So maybe the thought process that you fall into sometimes is, what if I don't have all of the answers yet? What if I don't have all of the knowledge yet? There, there's so many people around me that have known, uh, had a relationship with God for so much longer than me. They know, seem to know God so much better than I do. Does that make their relationship with him somehow closer than mine? Paul is correcting himself, saying it's not about you knowing enough about God. It's about him and how intimately he already knows you. Paul is pushing back against some of the ways of thinking that were damaging these churches in Galatia. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, these ways of thinking, they still impact us today. They still affect our thinking today as the church, as people who believe in, and follow Jesus. We can get caught up in what we need to do. Who do I need to be? How together do I have to be so that I can have relationship with him? How much do I have to know so that I can be close to him? Paul is breaking down this thought and saying, your focus is in the wrong place. We have to shift our focus from what I need to do to what he already did. To what he already did. It's where we have to start. No matter how much I want to fight or, or to prove my worth, how good I can be, it's already done. In verse 8, Paul, he makes the shift from the theological to the personal. So this is now the middle part of this wisdom oreo that Paul's uh, presenting for us. And he addresses uh, them as, as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm going to read this. This is uh, starting at verse 10. But even though my sickness was revolting to you, you did not reject me and turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful spirit we felt together then? In those days, I know you would gladly have taken your own eyes and given them to me if that had been possible. Have I now become your enemy for telling you the truth? This passage is talking about Paul being sick, um, some of these areas in uh, Galatia, they were up in, in mountains. So it was, uh, in, in order to get there, you had to probably go through some, some maybe malaria infested valleys. And so pro probably Paul picks something up along the way. So when he arrives, he's, he's not in great shape, okay? But he still preaches the gospel, the good news to them anyway. And it reminds me of the story. I am um, uh, maybe around two or three years ago. We were hanging out with our uh, our middle schoolers. We were we were doing an event. I think it was like a it was a Lake Day event, um, at Fern Ridge, 
And um, kind of typical to, to how most um, uh, events, youth events, seem to go. You know, you unload everybody, you get everybody there. And, and uh, you know, as we're unloading stuff, we're, we're going to go through the rules of what, what today is going to look like. You know, here's who's going to go on the boats when, here's when we're going to eat, that kind of stuff. And so we're listening, we're going through kind of the rules of what the day is going to look like. And as this is going on, I look over to the corner of my eye and I see probably two or three kids that are, are they have a kind of a pile of rocks and they're with our group and they're, they have a pile of rocks and they're throwing rocks up at this tree. They're just, they keep throwing rocks up at this tree. And I, so I kind of look, look at it and I, I, you know, I think that's probably not the smartest thing you could be doing, but it's fine. You know, it's, it's, you're not hurting anybody yet, so don't worry about it. And so you know, I, I don't say anything. These kids, are, they just keep throwing rocks. They just keep throwing rocks up at this tree. And so I end up, you know, maybe 30 seconds later, after I give them a little bit, I walk over to them. I'm like, hey, guys, um, we're, we're, we're probably not the best idea to be throwing rocks up at this tree. And, and why, why are you guys throwing rocks up this tree? And they point up, and I look, and there's a huge, almost cartoon-style beehive up in this tree. And these kids have these rocks and they're throwing these rocks up at this beehive. And so now I go to them like, hey, I feel like I shouldn't have to be the one to say this, but don't throw rocks at this beehive. I feel like that should not be something I would need to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Don't throw rocks at the beehive. And they, you know, look at me they're like, thanks a lot, loser. Got it. Um, so I, uh, I, I walk away and I kid you not, maybe... 30 seconds later, I look over again and these kids are still just throwing rocks at this beehive. They just are not stopping throwing rocks at this beehive. So I go over to them and I'm like, guys, come here for a second. What do you, what is the ideal, uh, how do you think this is going to end? Do you think this is going to end super well? Like what is the ideal uh, situation, you know, what is the outcome that you're looking for? You, is it that we hit the beehive and now there are bees that are attacking us? Is that, is that what we're trying to accomplish by throwing these rocks up at this beehive? And I, I felt like even though I was telling them the truth, hey, don't throw rocks at the beehive, they didn't want to hear the truth from me. They didn't want to hear what I had to say to them. Why bring up this story? Paul is saying, even though my sickness was revolting to you, once I began to preach and miracles followed and you received Christ, you treated me like an angel, even like Christ himself. Have I now become your enemy for telling you the truth? First part of this passage, we talked about God not needing the performance part of our relationship with him. Now here in the middle, we're making the shift from God showing us grace to us showing people that same grace. Paul is saying you've changed what happened to uh, all that, what happened to the joy that we shared with each other. How in the world have I become your enemy for telling you the truth? It was the same thought that I had with these middle schoolers that were throwing these rocks. I'm saying, I'm just telling you the truth. How am I your enemy now? These people started out treating Paul so well. But over time, as they leaned on the rules of relationship, 
they're now getting irritated with Paul. Why? Catch this. Genuine grace towards others can become resentful when we rely on a performance-based gospel. Genuine grace towards others can become resentful when we rely on a performance-based gospel. When we begin to view people based on their performance rather than how God views them through a lens of grace, we are missing it. We're missing it. Maybe you feel like that's me. I feel like I've changed my grace meter toward people that I once cared about. In many ways, they're they're becoming enemies in my heart. They become an enemy in my heart. And I have somehow let myself feel like I have it more together than somebody else does. You've thought, listen, I get it. I've got a lot to work on, but, and I know that there's places that I don't measure up, but at least I'm not as bad as them. I've got my stuff. I'm broken. I'm messed up. But have you seen them? I would extend this invitation to you. Maybe it's time to check the performance-based gospel in you. Here's where I want to land as we wind down this chapter. I love application. I love practical. What do we do now? How are, uh, what are some ways that my life can look different, be different? So I want to pick this up at the last part of our wisdom Oreo. Okay, this is back to the theological. This is Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. Paul begins this last section of his letter. He says, have you read the fine print? Do you know what the law actually is saying here? So, What Paul does is he gives them a history lesson on the Old Testament. He he wants to break this down a little bit. And so Paul, Paul, Paul uses the story of five people in the Old Testament. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, and Ishmael. Here's what happened. If you read uh, back in in Genesis, you'll see a story where God promises Abraham that he will have a son and that son will be the son of promise and, and will produce descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Okay. The only issue is Abraham is roughly in his 90s and and his wife Sarah is barren, okay, when God gives them both this promise. So if we we fast forward, if we skip 10 years from here, the two of them are getting a little bit antsy. They're, 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 They're ready for, the clock's ticking, they're ready to get things going. And so Sarah suggested that Abraham take an, an Egyptian servant named Hagar and have a baby with her. The, the custom of a surrogate childbirth, it was more common then. This was kind of just, you know, what you would do. And so in their mind, they're just speeding up along the process of, of God's promise for them, okay? 
And it's likely that Sarah was feeling like she was the problem with the whole promise that God had given them. So she's offering a solution. It's been 10 years. I'm the one who's infertile. So I need to come up with a plan in order to then move God's plan along. I feel like if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of us have done the same thing. We felt like we are the roadblock to God's plan. That if, if I were just out of the way, or if I, if I was different, if I was better, if I had done all of these things, then obviously God's plans would be much further along. And this, again, is the issue with comparison that we talked about earlier. It's when I compare my worst with someone else's best, I'm never going to be able to add up. I'm never going to be enough. So going back to Galatians, Abraham agrees. He's getting older. He's feeling like it's on them to get things moving. So they acted in the flesh in order to bring about the promise of God. So Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. Meanwhile, God goes to Abraham and he lets him know that this wasn't part of the plan. I I actually did have a plan if you would have trusted me. And he reestablishes, he goes to then reestablish the covenant. But even then, it's still years before Sarah's son Isaac was born. What's the point? Paul is saying, Your relationship with God has nothing to do with capability. It has everything to do with promise. Isaac is the son of promise. Ishmael representing the law, slavery to the law. Paul winds down the theological section of this letter this way. This is what he says. This is verse 31. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for me and you? We get to trust in the reality of his grace instead of the rules of a legalist. And when we do, we receive his promise, just like Sarah did, just like Abraham did. It sometimes feels like we have to take things into our own hands. We have to check all the boxes. But the story makes it clear that there is something powerful that can happen, that does happen when we trust God's plan. So what now? The message puts the end of this passage like this. There is a scripture that tells us what to do. And that is cast out the bondwoman. Faith people and law people cannot coexist. Grace people and legalists cannot coexist. Us, as the church, if, if, if we want to implement this, they can't. They can't coexist. Faith people, law people, they can't coexist. What does legalism do? It attempts to create a former work of God through what? Rules. Here's what happened before. God moved so powerfully in the past when we did this thing. We need to do that again so that we can create that experience again. Then God's going to show up. If I can just redo what we did before, then then it'll happen. 
Legalism will always focus on form to obtain faith, and people of promise will always focus on faith and trust form to follow. One of my favorite analogies when it comes to church and people, uh, how we interact with people, is imagine with me that you're on an airplane. You're on a cross-country airplane. You're going you're gonna to land in this country um, that you don't speak the language of at all. It's totally, um, totally unknown to you. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to land. And, and, and when you get out of the airplane in the airport, imagine it's, it's kind of chaos. There's just a lot of moving pieces, and it's, and it's all these different languages that you don't speak. And so you're kind of, you're trying to get your bearings, and you're, you're looking around, trying to figure it out. And then you hear somebody speaking the language that you speak. What are you going to do? You're going to gravitate towards that person, right? You're going to try and find some sort of clarity or what, what needs to happen next. Sometimes in church or church culture, I, I, I've, I've, you know, heard kind of the question asked, um, it, it, even at youth group sometimes, we'll, before service, we'll maybe play a, a secular song or we'll do maybe a special of a, a song that is kind of a popular song that students would know about. And I've heard the question asked before, why do we do this? Why do we present, what is the purpose of this? Going back to this airplane analogy, if somebody walks into church for the first time and it's all unknowns, okay, there's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of people, there's worship and a message and, and, and all, all this stuff. But then they hear something that they know. They, they're, they're under, they hear the language that they speak. The prayer is that walls would start to break down and we would be able to relate to that person in that way, right? And then ultimately that Jesus would speak into their lives. But the legalist in us wants to say, listen, that's not the way that things have been done in the past. You know, we, 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 we want to say, you know, this is, this is how it's been done. This is how we're supposed to do it. I don't know that it's supposed to look like that. The challenge for us is to check that legalist. Faith people and law people don't mix. Grace people and works people don't mix. The hope for us is because of who God is, we get to cast aside that legalist in us. Our prayer becomes... Lord, use me in spite of my brokenness to show others the same grace that you're showing me every single day. Let's pray together um, wherever you're at. I want to pray for two groups of people. I, 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 I think the first group of people is those who would say, uh, you feel like I, I want to check the performance-based gospel in me. I've spent a lot of time looking around at others and my grace meter has started to slip and I want to show others the same grace that he has shown me. I want let's pray together for this group if that feels like where you're at. Jesus. Lord, would you help us to not rely on a performance-based gospel? 
would you help us to show others the same grace that you are showing to us day and day and day after day. Jesus, for those, those, those moments that we feel like our, our, our grace meter is low, we just we, we feel somehow more, more entitled or more put together. Lord, would you check our hearts? Cause us to look inward. Challenge us, push us. We need you. Amen. Second group is for those who feel like my relationship with God has been dependent on what I can do and how I can measure up, and I want to receive his grace that's already gone before me. Even if I don't feel like enough, he is already enough. If you're ready to receive or wanting to receive that grace this morning, let's pray together. Jesus, for the rest of us, for those that would say, I need your grace. I need to experience it. Lord, I, I feel like I've, I, I've needed to prove the ways that I am I'm capable. Or, or Lord, maybe there, there's places where we felt um, that we don't measure up and so that's kept us at a distance from you. Jesus, would you show up? Will we start to comprehend what your grace can look like in our lives? Jesus, we are trusting you. We love you in this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at covechurchpnw. We'll see you next time.